0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. So, what's the topic for today?
0: Well, the title of this episode is Relapse After Rehab.
1: Oh, something we have no personal experience with. Oh.
0: Well, that's not true. We have lots of experience with relapse.
1: Well, lots of rehab. Relapse, but not rehab. Well, necessarily.:
0: Maybe not direct, direct well, we personal can. experience, but yeah. we, uh, we've got a lot of experience with other people.
1: Yeah. We and can as reiterate I'm, their stories. And <laughs> as
0: I'm going to share when we first start talking about the topic, we've watched lots of movies about rehab, so we got that going for us. But we're really roping in the audience, aren't we? They're like, yeah. let me listen to these experts.
1: Exactly. I'm also thinking lots of movies about...
0: Well, I have. You don't... Okay. You don't like sad alcoholism movies necessarily like I Because I
1: can only think of two, but yeah.
0: You can only think of two total alcoholism movies?
1: That I've watched.
0: What? I gotta know. <laughs> Is it uh, Leaving Las Vegas?
1: No, I've never seen that one.
0: That's pretty hard to watch. Yeah. What? So what?
1: Um... When a man loves a woman,
0: ah, oh, my favorite. But she doesn't, re-
1: she doesn't. relapse though.
0: We don't know. It's <laughs> left in a cliffhanger. Oh, that's. We don't true. know if the relationship's going to get back together. We don't know if she's going to make it.
1: Yeah, we're just doing a bang up job of, of expressing our knowledge, and then the one beautiful boy. Yeah. Because didn't he go to yep. some that's sort drug, of rehab and then...
0: and then? but wait a minute. What about? <laughs> well, you're you doing good this morning. Somewhere. Yeah. What well, about?
1: I have a cold. Yeah. Pretty bad one.
0: Yeah. And you were up trying to give medicine to a sick cat last night. Everyone knows how much you love your cats. So
1: Yeah, it was a long two AM
0: alarm to medicine cat. But he seems to be doing well. We don't want to concern anyone.
1: Yes, let's not concern anyone. About your cat. It's your favorite cat. So I was yes. Well
0: let's let's dive into the listener question. Good choice. Thanks. My husband and I are in very early recovery. One month sober. I still still feel so lonely even now that he is sober. I still feel like I'm on eggshells. I'm feeling grateful but frustrated. How do I initiate conversations in the, with this new playing field? It's a good one. Yeah. It's a good question.
1: Well, and it's not that I want to discredit anyone that's... Because I'm not one who had the addiction to alcohol... And I'm not saying, like, a month is nothing, but...
0: But a month is nothing. But a
1: month is really short time. Yeah. <coughs> Lots of people that, from our experience and stories we've heard, do it just to prove to their loved ones that they don't have a problem. See, I can go without drinking. Yeah. So, I mean, you can still, like, your your defense mechanism is still up, and you're still really guarded, because... That's not a long time, and I wouldn't expect there to be a whole lot of changes in conversation and and bouncing back to either what you had before or moving on to something new.
0: Not only are the defense mechanisms up and are you still guarded, but you should be. Yeah. Like, that's how this should work if you're doing it right. You, should, you shouldn't You um, should say, oh, you're sober a month, uh, let me give you my full trust again and let me return to uh, not worrying about the potential for relapse or not worrying about what nasty thing you're going to say to me or that you're hiding something from me. Let me just open my... I mean, that would be... that. You know, That's something that I think a lot of people do the first time mm-hmm. their spouse tries to get sober. But after they've been through it a few times, because it's very typical for it not to stick the first time the spouse tries to get sober. It took me 10 years right? Um, of... Attempts and failures at sobriety, but yeah, um, not only are your defenses still up after a month, but they should be, that's, you're doing it right.
1: Yeah, I think so. I I mean, especially if this is their first attempt at sobriety, Yeah, you know, it's kind of like you've got to kind of get like the alcoholic has to get in their groove and find what works for them. And we, as the loved ones, want to try to help that, but we also have to remember it's it's got to be things that they find because you can't make people do things. Yeah, I mean, you can have somebody read a book, but they may not, you know, understand or or connect with it. And it has to be something that they find to connect with. Because I think the success is much better when they've found something that they connect with. But we also, as the loved ones, have to still be guarded because there's a lot. That hasn't happened in that month time frame. And that's just the very baby step of the journey.
0: The word that stands out in this listener question is she says, I'm still feeling, or I still feel so lonely even now that he is sober. So the way she worded that implies that for a long time during his addiction, she felt lonely. And that is, oh, that's a universalism right there. Yeah. We've talked a lot Both on the podcast and in our Echoes of Recovery group and in other groups about how being married to an alcoholic is almost more lonely than if you were all by yourself. Yeah. Because we isolate, we gaslight, we deflect, um, we do, you know, we have mood swings, we do all those things. The one thing we don't do is connect on a healthy level with our spouses.
1: Right, and then as the spouse, we're probably home watching and making sure that things stay okay and that nothing goes wrong while they're drinking. So then we isolate ourselves from our friends because we don't feel safe going out because we worry of yep. what's going to happen on the home front. So then you become more isolated as well, but also that early sobriety is very selfish because, you know, really you guys are just kind of you know, the alcoholics are just really trying to do everything they can to hold on to that sobriety. And it's like you've mentioned time and time again. It's very selfish because they're trying so quickly to pedal through sobriety and get through the day that all their... Avoid they're the just,
0: temptations. Avoid learn avoid all temptation. the things. They're just
1: so consumed. One of the things, They don't have a lot to offer.
0: One of the things that you have shared is that you definitely were much more realistic than I was in knowing that sobriety wasn't going to fix anything. You knew there were lots of underlying issues. And so when I first got sober, you knew that's when the work began. But I think the thing that did surprise you was that a lot of the behavior on my part would stay the same and that you would still, as you've put it, be you know second place to... You were second place to alcohol for so many years when I was drinking, and then you were still second place to my recovery work when I was in early sobriety. I think you knew that there was work to be done, but I think it surprised you that you still weren't my top priority. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think that was really surprising. I think with the longer-term attempts that you had of trying sobriety in the past, um, like your six-month and nine-month stents, I could tell you still were not very happy, and you were still moody and didn't find joy. So I was not surprised with that. But I was surprised at how much you still needed to do something in place of drinking. Yeah. Or you still didn't find, you know, it okay to do things without feeling those, um, woe is me sort of feelings. So
0: when this listener talks about still feeling lonely, I mean, that is, again, it's universal. That is, that is how it goes. It's sad. It sucks. You know, alcoholism sucks. It sucks in addiction. It sucks in sobriety, early sobriety. Uh, This is why prevention and education is way, way more important to you and me than the recovery piece. Because you should avoid getting yourself in this pickle as opposed to just trying to get yourself out of it. I mean, obviously, if you're in it, let's get you out of it. But um, there's so many parts of it that are difficult. To, To finish up on this listener's question, the last, you know, the actual question, right? The last piece that she put is how do I initiate conversations in this new playing field and i think you know again this this is a this is a patience thing this is a long game we i think the big message that i would want to drive home is when people on both sides of the fence the alcoholic and the loved one can deal with traumas from the past without it re-traumatizing you that's when you're making serious progress and getting healthy and that doesn't happen after 1 month no. That might not happen after one year. That That's a long-term deal.
1: Yeah. I mean, and and, and maybe it's something as small in the meantime uh-huh. as finding something that's new and common ground. Yeah. Whether it's a new hobby or just taking quiet walks. So you don't even have to talk, but you're just moving together.
0: Ooh, good idea. Quiet um, walks.
1: Yeah, I would like why walks. I wonder what
0: that would be like. <laughs> I don't know. You can I'm, I'm you can sure walk I can without fun. talking.
1: You can walk without I talking. I talk when
0: I'm walking by myself.
1: I know. <laughs> um, but something like that, you know, or maybe it's just exercising together and going to the gym together or you know, but not or tai chi, that makes me think of something that like you can be in your own head and focus or tai chi you focus on other things, but it's something you're doing like parallel. Kind of like how you would talk to a teenage boy. You get them in the car, so you're parallel, and that's when you talk. Yeah. Or, you know...
0: They're locked in, they can't go anywhere, they They don't (laughs) have to look you in the face.
1: But I think, like, like maybe just the physical connection without a whole lot of heavy conversations, because I felt like you and I had heavy conversations for years, yeah. and then in sobriety, it was more heavy conversations, and I know it was later in life, when I was like, or later in the recovery process, when I was like, I am so tired of these heavy conversations all the time. I'm not saying don't ever go back to those, but in the meantime, if you feel like you and your partner are both wanting some sort of connection, maybe you do it that's new, Neutral, you know,
0: it's a great reminder for listeners if they didn't get a chance to listen to episode 187 from last week about how do you have fun in recovery because you're right, it is a lot of heavy and even too much heavy. You know, the last thing I would say on this is just keep your expectations low. I know that sounds negative, but that's what early sobriety is for the loved one, for the drinker for the former drinker it's got to be go a million miles an hour try all the things find the the group that works for you learn about recovery nutrition learn about bibliotherapy learn about brain chemistry but for the spouse the possibility of relapse is real the possibility of moodiness and and continued loneliness that's again just pretty much a universalism so just low expectations it's kind of treat like middle school you know <laughs> I think elementary school is beautiful. Kids so are making sweet. crafts and they they're nice they're to each other. they how to read and oh, write adorable. their
1: letters. And, and in numbers. high school they're
0: turning into adults and they they're learning Thinking. accountability and yeah. they they're starting to think about what their career might look like.
1: But then when they're, they like have their own input, you yeah. know, in in like the yeah, the decision making. Yeah.
0: Learn how to drive. Middle school is just bo and <laughs> and bad words. Bo and bad words. That's what middle school is. Yeah. So just try to just try to get through early and sobriety. God bless. Low expectations.
1: The middle school employees.
0: God bless the middle school teachers and other employees.
1: Whew.
0: It's rough. So Sherry, let's go back to our talk about. Oh, um, if if you too would like to ask a listener question, we would love that. Our recent um, call for the inventory on listener questions getting low has generated some great new questions. And we want your question to be one of the great new questions. So just send your listener question to Matt at com. You will not get a clinical answer, but you'll get Sherry and I. What are you laughing about?
1: I'm just laughing about the call for the questions and you were kind of leading to what I was thinking. You won't get a clinical, but you'll hear us try to muddy our way through an answer for you. Well,
0: we're both a little sleep deprived and Sherry's got a cold, so if you had high expectations for this hour today, then
1: I think you need to keep
0: your expectations low. Let's talk about movies some more. I love movies.
1: Alright, so what was the one you were going to mention?
0: Well, I have two that really lead into what the conversation is about Relapse After Rehab. Um, A Star is Born is the other one that I was going to mention beforehand that I know you've watched and that I love so much. And then I want to watch the earlier versions of.
1: Well, I didn't...
0: Heartbreaking. Really hard to watch. I
1: only watched the newer version once because I said before we watched the one with Bradley Cooper, I wanted to watch the older versions and then make it sequential and then we can compare and contrast. Yeah. But, yeah, I forgot that he had gone to... That he had gone to rehab.
0: In yeah, the movie. yeah, that's a sad movie. But the two that I wanted yeah. to talk specifically about today are a little older. Uh, I don't remember when the Michael Keaton movie came out. I think it was in the '90s. It's called Clean and Sober. Hmm. And then the Sandra Bullock movie that I want to reference is called Twenty Eight Days, and that was released, I believe, in two thousand. And in and the reason I want to talk about both those movies is because. The stories kind of blend together in my head, and I don't remember the specifics of either so one. You did
1: no research for this. I looked up. Of like I looked up the at,
0: names and, okay. and and one of the two dates. Okay. I did that. Yeah, so in both of these movies, Michael Keaton's Clean and Sober and Sandra Bullock's Twenty Eight Days, they go to rehab, and they come back from rehab, and the the kind of the the ending point that the movie makes is how real the relapse threat is. So, I think in both cases, I know in the Sandra Bullock case, they go very reluctantly into rehab. I can't remember if it's an intervention or not, but they go and they don't want to be there. And then over the course of the month that they're there, they come around and they start learning things and they start interacting with the other people that are there and they form friendships and then when they come out like what the movie producers or writer tries to do is show you the how real the threat of relapse is and the reason I brought up those two movies is because I always thought you know even having watched those movies even being a recovered alcoholic myself that the point of the threat is the temptation Sandra Bullock specifically in 28 days she there's a scene toward the end where she goes she gets out of rehab and she goes to meet up with her friends because she misses her friends and she goes to meet up with them in a bar. And she decides she can't do it. So I think in the case of that movie, her friends are making no attempt to give her a soft landing. They're like, you know, come meet us in the bar, we're gonna get drunk, and you can sit there and drink water. And give us
1: a ride home.
0: And she, she ends up leaving. Um but you know, I always looked at that when I watched that movie and said, oh, she's got shitty friends. She needs to leave those friends. Those friends are a temptation. That bar is a temptation. If she can get away from those friends in that bar, she'll be fine. That was what I thought. And I, you know, I think that's probably the intent of the writer and the director. And I think that's probably what most people think when they watch that movie. But what I want to talk about today is it's not just the things that we're thrust back into after rehab. Now, full disclosure, like you said... I never went to rehab. So but but we know, you know, we know a zillion people at this point who did. And um I think what people always think, so maybe it's actually better that I didn't because you and I can view this from the outsider's perspective and then talk about how that outsider's perspective is I think wrong. Because we think it's just what they're thrust back into that's the threat for relapse. So Same people, same places, same things, all these things that remind you of alcohol. And that is why you might relapse. I think it's what's taken away from you when you leave rehab. And what I mean by that is, you know, everyone thinks in rehab yeah, you're going to dry out for a little while, so you're going to do the detox thing, you're going to get the physical addiction um, dealt with. Mm-hmm. But then you're going to learn things. You're going to learn about all the things I just said during the listener question, right? You're going to, if you go to a modern rehab that deals with brain chemistry and, and new research, you're going to learn about uh, eating nutritious foods that lead to neurotransmitter regeneration. You're going to learn about the importance of exercise. You're going to learn about the importance of community, you're going to learn about brain chemistry. You're going to learn all these these things. And so, okay, I went to rehab. I was there for 30 days or 28 days or whatever. And now I learned all the stuff. So I am ready to go back out into the world. But just because you learned it, the environment in rehab, it, you're in a bit of a cocoon, right? You can express and discuss your emotions, which for most of us, certainly the males, you've never done that before in your whole life. Yeah and after, you know, maybe the first week is rough in rehab, but after a while you, you're you sitting in these group therapy discussion sessions and you realize not only is it a safe place to talk about how you're feeling, but everybody else is. So you kind of feel safe and feel vulnerable and you go there and you talk about your emotions. You get self-care when you're in rehab. You get sleep. You get the, the potential for sleep. You have all the things are taken off your plate, your family responsibilities, your community responsibilities, your work responsibilities. So you, you know, it is, you know, it's not the kind of, I don't want to make it sound like a tropical resort, although some of the expensive rehabs are, but you're getting away from all the hard stuff that you deal with on a daily basis. The
1: life shit. The The life 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 shit. Yeah. So
0: getting a vacation from the life shit
1: yeah to work on yourself which is great but then there needs to be that the transition stage of like preparedness to go back into life because obviously the lack of coping skills that you had going in led you to probably some alcohol abuse yeah. disorder you know an alcohol use disorder or any other addictive substance yeah because those were coping skills
0: yeah absolutely so I know this is a subtle point. It's a nuanced point. I think it would be easy to miss the point I'm trying to make. But rehab is not just about the learning and the breaking the physical addiction. It's about finding this safe place to be vulnerable, to deal with your emotions, to rest and take care of yourself. And then when you are thrust back into the world and I mean it makes me think of Now, this is something I do have experience with, just no memory of, but like a baby coming out of the womb and you're like, whoa, it was warm and dark in there and now there's bright lights and it's cold and what the hell is going on? I think that's a lot of what it's like coming out of rehab, but I think most people are too stoic and proud to admit that, you know, here I, I just came back to my family. This is fucking awful. Yeah. How do you admit, how do you say to your wife <coughs> or your kids, you know, I, I can't handle being around, being back here around you.
1: Yeah. Well, and just think about like anybody that has like sensory issues, you know, going from their little safe place in their room or their house or whatever and then going out in the world. Like it's just sensory overload. But um, I think part of that like rehab is, is also to say you're being opened up to explore the things that cause you to drink and to heal. It doesn't mean when rehab is over, you're done because that's just opening the door and letting you walk into the foyer to kind of start your sobriety journey. Mm -hmm. And so you have to make sure that you find programs and find outlets when you get there. And I think that that kind of leads to the listener question about being lonely. The people who are seeking full-time sobriety are going as fast as they can for, but then hopefully they have communities, whereas there's not a lot of communities out there for the um, families and loved ones and partners of the addicted person. I mean, there's a few, but so then your, your partner that's been addicted is wrapped up in their sobriety and their community and their program. And now you're kind of just here with the wings waiting.
0: Well, I can't tell you how many times you know this. We've heard the loved ones say, where's my rehab? Where's my 30 days without work, family, community stress? Yeah. Who's going to let me do 30 days of self-care and talking about my feelings? So, is that the point you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, the point I'm making, like, I mean, I've tried to make several points. So thank you for picking up on one.
0: Well, you know, <laughs> limited, limited brain
1: capacity. But you know, Listen it's, a, it's for the the person coming out of rehab. So I guess, like, part of that is like really look at the program that you're gonna commit this 30 days to and this big chunk of money as as a family, because make sure it has aftercare resources and can help you launch back into that. Sobriety in the real world, because you're right, that's pretty intense. I mean, even just think about coming back from vacation. Yeah. You know, like, in a simple term, like, you want to have a day to, like, kind of, a day at least, to trans- you know, transition back into real life. Yeah. And then think about it in the grand scheme of being addicted. Yeah. And, and you've been protected and you've had this safe space and now you're back around with all the people that you feel ashamed around. Yeah. And that you feel that you know you've hurt or you don't understand that you've hurt.
0: I want to talk about the identity piece as it relates to the alcoholic specifically. And I want to start this part of the discussion by talking about stress. I... Recently watched an Amazon Prime documentary called Heal. Sherry's rolling her eyes. Um, <laughs> she thinks I go too deep into this stuff. But it's a documentary. In, and first I do want to say, I recognize that documentaries are funded and produced by people who have an opinion on one side of the issue. So I watch a lot of documentaries, but I always do so with my eyes open to the fact that I'm not getting the counter-argument when I watch a documentary. I'm only hearing one side. So I get that, Sherry. But it's called Heal. It's on Amazon Prime for free. If it wasn't free, I wouldn't have watched it. So. <laughs> Which <laughs> or, or you are, <laughs> our regular listeners would already know that.
1: Yeah. Or that, you know, you have to have yeah. Amazon Prime. So it's not really free. You pay with your membership. Right. So.
0: Right. But...
1: It's not an added. I, I
0: didn't pay $10 <laughs> in addition to the annual <laughs> right. subscription. But it it... Basically has a bunch of experts, homeopathic experts, functional medicine doctors, um, chiropractic people, and some people whose title is a little less mainstream than that. There's some kind of frou-frou titles next to the experts' names. But the point they're trying to make is that stress is really responsible for the majority of the diseases that we, we have to deal with in our society these days all the autoimmune stuff a lot of the cancers and listen this isn't the first time i've heard this stuff i right. am a big believer that a ton of what we put ourselves through is lifestyle and yes. certainly as a recovered alcoholic well you know of course you would expect me to believe that because i had a lifestyle disease addiction right i i made choices to consume a toxin and it and it backfired on me and caused all kinds of turmoil. So it's not a stretch for me to believe that processed foods and um, you know stressful lifestyles are causing damage to us. So, but you know, the, I think we're going to see more and more in coming years about the impact of stress, <laughs> and that it's not just something you manage, and it's not something we all have to live with. It's it's a big deal in our physical health as well as our mental and emotional health, and and the pathway that it creates for addiction. But I think it's important that we not just think of stress as a trigger, because that's what I always did. Right, I'm six years sober, and until recently, I've always looked, just like I looked at those movies and said, oh, Sandra Bullock, her friends are at the bar, that's a trigger, because the drinking is there. As opposed to thinking, oh, you know what the trigger is? She doesn't have that safe place to be vulnerable and express her emotions anymore. Um, Anything that's the opposite of rehab is a trigger, whether it's a bar or it's just sitting by yourself. So just the same way I've changed my impression on the dangers of relapse that happen after rehab. You know, another component of this is stress isn't just a direct trigger, meaning I okay, I'm back to working 70 hours a week, that's hard, and it makes me want to drink to cut the tension and as relief it's bigger than that I think we, I, I, the vast majority of the high functioning alcoholics that are seeking sobriety that we meet their work is the biggest chunk of their identity myself included <clears throat> so they get their self esteem and their pride and their mojo and their motivation and all of that not from family not from peace and serenity around um, their existence on this planet and the fact that they're a good person and that they're trying hard. No. All of that mojo, all that that self-esteem and motivation comes from work. And when you drive yourself to fill your own bucket, right, to get those dopamine hits, just like we overconsume alcohol to get dopamine hits, we also work too much to get the dopamine hits. the The dopamine doesn't come from the long hours. The dopamine comes from the success that results from the long hours. The attaboy's, the promotions, the projects that go well. You know, for some people, their career is directly tied to finance finances. So, like people who are straight commission, for instance, or if they make the deal, then they get you know they get the payoff. Um, so whatever that dopamine hit comes from, whatever you define sex sex success as in your career um, yeah uh, whatever that connection is um, that's your work identity and again vast majority of the people that we we meet and work with on the high-functioning alcoholic side have that so the why this is important from an identity standpoint as a Drinker, you know, who was not a sleeping in the gutter, you know, drinking vodka twenty-four hours a day. Drinker, I a huge chunk of my identity came from alcohol itself. I was proud of what I knew about IPAs, and I was proud of our our local craft beer industry in Colorado. And I was proud that I drank whiskey on the rocks when I was drinking a cocktail and. So, you're rolling your eyes, but you know what I'm no, talking I'm about. I'm trying
1: not to. I'm blowing my nose, and I'm trying not to. I mean, it's silly, to.
0: and I look back, and it's silly, but you know that that was true.
1: Yeah. Well, I was really just rolling my eyes, trying not to make a sound when I was trying to blow my nose, so our listeners aren't grossed out, but it was time. Yeah. Um, but for us non-drinkers, it is silly, but there is It is also, eye-rollable. It is eye-rollable, but when we think about it, there's always something, whether you have an addiction or not, that you... Tied to your identity. If somebody
0: asked me what your identity was.
1: Me? As in you, you were asked by someone else. If else's somebody name. asked
0: me what your me, Matt, your identity, Sherry is, I would say that you prioritize parenting over everything. Do you does that come through identity wise? If if somebody asked you what do you want to be remembered by, do you want to be remembered as being a good mom?
1: Um, I guess I don't really I suppose I want our kids to think good that to. I was a good. One.
0: Yeah. Well, if I mean, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? If your kids think you're a good mom, then you are. Because yeah. Who, who else opinion I mean, matters, but right? But if
1: other people like, I guess I don't really, I don't really care what other people are thinking. Maybe in the beginning, I was a little more self-conscious, and now I think in. I'm not as much self-conscious about and tied to my identity, so I really just want you and our kids to feel like I'm a good mom.
0: Well, you are. You're the best. But what's really interesting about that is so I talk a lot about the identity piece. I I think it I think it's interesting that perhaps just having an identity at all is stronger in people who um, be suffer from addiction because we have this thing that we're trying to relate ourselves to and it works sometimes and it doesn't other times and we're driven by it and that creates the need <laughs> to self medicate I'm not surprised that you said I really don't care what other people think I care what my kids think, I care what my husband thinks but you don't the more I think about it you don't have a strong identity piece you're just being a good human and yeah. trying to enjoy your life yeah, so I, I probably don't feel like leads to one... less need to self medicate if you don't yeah, have I know the strong I was like so sitting here while just... you were
1: talking. I was like, "What am I?" I mean, I guess like I joke, and I do love our cats. I really do, but I don't think I can ever be like the crazy cat lady. Mm-hmm. So I can't really be you tied sure? to that. You know, I mean, I'm a you cat mom, be too far to go. Well, I don't like that much hair and litter boxes. So I do have a threshold. Like right now shedding season, I'm a little annoyed by them. Yeah. But then they, you know, get sick and then I get worried and then I'm like, oh, I love you so much. Um, But yeah, I think, I think for me, when I started thinking about what my identity piece was, I think I said to you, like, and you don't remember, but early on in our relationship when there was the question about children, I said... If we, have one, if we have children or have a child, I really want to be that more stay-at-home, hands-on parent. Not that I feel like I was neglected because I had my extended family close and grandparents growing up, but my mom was a full-time working single mom, and I just wanted to, to do it differently. Also, we lived far away from our family, so I felt like having that strong bond to a a. Parent or grandparent was really important for a child. Yeah. So I think I kind of definitely
0: really important, and I think
1: I kind of just established that if we do have kids, I wanted to be the more hands-on at home kind of parent than what I grew up with. But I don't, I don't know if that would be considered like then forming my identity. Yeah, I I I just
0: I don't think that's as important to you, and I think that's the fact that it's not important to you is an important thing that we're learning here on the spot as we're talking about it. I would venture to guess that that's fairly somewhat universal. I mean, I'm thinking of the people that we know well. I can think of some of them that identify with specific aspects of parenting, or or being creative, for instance, uh, being playful. Um, but I I think that the the connection to identity for alcoholics is strong and it's necessary. It's almost like Without that, we don't know who we are, and I know that the word is identity, so it makes sense that without that, we don't know who we are, but we're not comfortable I'm not comfortable just existing I'm not comfortable just
1: well doing I, my
0: best i need we, i need to there needs to be a connection for yeah
1: me. it is it's kind of interesting because this was numbers of years ago. your sister had said something to me, and then you would repeat to me things like you both felt like you were sort of destined for something bigger than just living. Hmm. Like, you always felt like being normal and being middle of the road and being content. Like, you have a lot of contentment in some things, some areas. Contentment's
0: hard for me. It's it's getting easier, but I have to work at it. But you
1: have to work at it. Like, that's why I said, like, Contentment is easy for some things for you, but there's always something that's driving you and your sister. And I always felt it was kind of weird that you're both like that. Um, and then, <coughs> you know, I'm not gonna like try to analyze her drinking status at all because I don't think there is um, abuse with it. But it just felt like it was it was something. I wonder if it was lacking in your DNA or, and then you being the boy, the male, it was much like you had to prove it and then to cope with it because you didn't talk about things. Then you had that confidence piece get knocked away yeah. and your stress, you know, like you had to, had to find a way to cope with your stress and worry and concern Yeah. because you hadn't like, formed your identity or you hadn't met your goals or.
0: It's interesting. So to, so to bring this full circle. <laughs> Sorry. Why are you laughing Cold at? Cold
1: brain. Yeah. No, you're good. Cold brain. So to
0: bring this full circle, so you the identity piece for us alcoholics, you go to rehab and a big chunk of your identity is ripped away from you. Sometimes voluntarily, sometimes not. And that is that piece as a drinker. You think drinking is cool and you think what you drink is cool And when you go to a neighborhood party, uh, that's how you are known or or work happy or whatever. And so that's taken away. You're not a drinker anymore. Well, but I can still get self-esteem from work. Well, that's where the stress is. So you get back from rehab and not only is stress a threat that we all know, but it's more so because you feel this intrinsic need to dive back into getting those dopamine hits and that chunks of self-esteem from success at work. And so it's almost like Sandra Bullock saying yeah, my friends are at the bar and they're all drinking at the bar, but I gotta go to the bar. Because if work is your other piece of identity, you can't not go back to work.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's more than just, oh, you know, we've got to cushion this person. They're going to come back to reality and they're going to face stress again and that could be threatening, they have to face the stress again. Because that's the only piece of their identity that's left. And I'm talking, when I say the vast majority of the people that we interact with on the drinker side have this work self-esteem connection. I mean, it's it's a lot. It's not just, you know, me and a few others. Like, I think this is a big, big, big deal. I think the work stress leads to the addiction in many cases. And It threatens relapse because we can't not go back. I'm not saying I mean, I would never say you should go to rehab and then never work again. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you're going to, in many cases, you're going to go back with the same, you know, it's going to be the same priority in your life. This is where, this is what I am. This thing that I do is what I am. And so if you can find a way to break that, I do know people that have transitioned career-wise into less stressful things and that that, that's been successful for them in avoiding relapses so that's good too but okay here here I think is the biggest point when it comes to you go to rehab and you've got this safe place to process your emotions to be vulnerable and to do self care and then you come out and you say and we've heard it so many times I learned so much that was a good experience I learned all the things I don't need anything anymore I'm just going to be on my own I don't need a group I don't need a program Rehab was intense. It was expensive. It cost me a month of work. I'm good. Well, I don't think if if you're good on the things you learned, like you read stuff every day and you processed it and you took notes and you learned it, great. You can be good on that. But you aren't good from the standpoint that you've still got a safe place to express your emotions and be vulnerable and um, to to work on that self care piece. So you need that. No matter how good your rehab was. No matter how much you learned.
1: Well, and I think that what we've kind of talked about in our we don't call it necessarily recovery. We've coined the phrase from one of our Echoes member of discovery. Like you need to keep growing and learning in your healing journey. I hate the word journey, but healing process. So to just say I'm good and then go back to life that's why I said, like, I think it's important to try to f- remind yourself that this was just a door open. You need to find outlets to cope with your life in the real world, whether it be groups or reading or podcasting or, th- you know, one-on-one therapy or group therapy. And Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I think it's the biggest mistake you can make to say,
1: I'm good after 30 days. There's a
0: finish line and I crossed it there's cuz there's never a finish line. There's no finish line for me. I've just transitioned. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about alcohol or talking about alcohol when it comes to my own recovery anymore or my own growth and discovery as you said. I think about, you know, how can I be a better parent? Um how can I do a better job of relaxing and and getting away from stress? Not dealing with stress, but avoiding it. The more that's why I watch these uh documentaries about stress and things like that. I I want to fully embrace how much damage stress does to the body because that's what I need to know in order for me to take seriously the idea of getting away from stress.
1: Yeah, and let's not you know forget that the person and the loved ones are being stressed by an alcoholic or other addictive substance that their partners or loved ones have. So we are like in a level of stress that fight or flight mode or, um, yeah. So that's just, um, you know, we're fully on guard. So we also have to learn how to regulate our systems and find things that support our stress level.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. It applies to both sides of the street. You know, I want to give my all-time favorite movie quote. Do you know what my all-time favorite movie quote is, Sherry? Since we've been talking about movies today? You're either growing or you're dying. There ain't no third direction.
1: Oh, uh, I could have guessed that one. From, from Big
0: Tommy. Tom. From Tommy Boy.
1: I was going to say that Right or... before
0: he dies of a heart attack from stress, probably. Yeah. right.
1: And, and size and diet, I'm sure. Yeah. But it was probably his coping
0: but you're either growing or you're dying. There ain't no third direction. And so, I, I just think it's so important. It, okay, fine. You get to the point where you're not tempted by alcohol when you go to a party. Great. Good for you. I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm there with you. Doesn't mean you're done. Gotta keep working. Gotta keep moving forward. Gotta keep growing and gotta keep discovery. Another important point about that, I think, and I want to get your perspective. Your spouse can't be all things to you. Your spouse cannot be your vulnerable place, your emotion expressing place, and your self care. That's not fair. That's not the role of a spouse in marriage. It, we have a big gender problem in our patriarchal society where, you know, among the problems with the way we do things is that men aren't supposed to express their emotions. And so often, we get married and we don't do it intentionally, but that spouse of ours becomes the only place where we will express our emotions and be vulnerable. And that, that doesn't work. It doesn't, as the spouse, doesn't that sound awful? Like You don't want me to just whine to you all the time,
1: right? Correct. Yeah. It's hard being that only person for one person when usually we've got other people that are doing that to us regard you know like, your like kids. being the yeah and other you know other female family members like because we are already like in our own life sharing and and talking about other feelings so to it's, be,
0: fun, it's funny you mention your kids because i've heard a lot of people say listen i didn't get married to be some guy's mom yeah um but you know we i guess We take the things that we used to dump on our mom and we say, oh, we got a new woman in our life. I'm not going to talk to any of my buddies about any of this. That would get me castrated. So I'm just going to dump all this stuff on my new mom, who's my wife. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, brings me back to this is not a podcast about sex and intimacy this episode but it brings me back to my favorite Esther Perel Belgian-American psychotherapist who talks about how you know, you can't be attracted to someone that you're caring for. So yeah. if you, if you're the dude, if you're the guy and you're the recovering alcoholic and you're in sobriety and you're finding your only emotional outlet and your only vulnerable safe place to be your wife, you are making a huge mistake if you expect that person to also be attracted to you.
1: Well, and it's not just the emotional piece of it, but the physical piece of it too, the caretaking, the doing all the things. Yeah. Like, doing the laundry. The yeah. How
0: about, you know, doing some of your care. own stuff, doing yeah. some chores. Yeah. I vote for dishes. I like dishes. I do not like laundry.
1: That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we got a
0: good thing worked out. I
1: think that it's, there needs to be more, you know,
0: when I'm doing dishes, I'm thinking about sex, you know, Sherry,
1: I'm sure you are. i gonna get me dishes. So look at me. I'm sex. doing the dishes. She's yeah. gonna be so excited. Yeah, and I'm like, no. Look at me put just... the
0: forks in the right direction. Look at me rinse before I put these things in here. Yeah. Actually, I'm a bit of a dishes Nazi now. I get you really are... frustrated when people actually, put I things wouldn't in say wrong.
1: Nazi, that I think you're just well, kind of a dick about it. But yeah, like no one dish. loads it <laughs> right. Well,
0: first of all, no one lo- like the kids would pile to the ceiling the dishes in the sink even if the dishwasher's empty. And we can then, all have
1: our own opinions about how to load the dishwasher. And
0: then when they do put them in, I'm like, that's the absolute wrong <laughs> point. That's 100%. It's-
1: this makes me think about that um, armchair recovery. Armchair expert. Jack yes. Shepard. Said if you're arguing about the dishwasher, you're, you're really not. not
0: really arguing about the dishwasher. In our
1: case, we really are. Because... That's pretty funny that you and I have different opinions on how the dishwasher should get loaded or not overloaded. Well, we have a new
0: fancy dishwasher after years of having a dish humidifier that didn't (laughs) actually wash anything. It just made things moist and they continued to be dirty when they came out. Thank God nobody died of salmonella during that stage. But we're okay. We made it. Um, Yeah, so got to find a way to deal with that identity piece and not have the stress be overwhelming got to find a way to continue after rehab with finding that vulnerable place, place to work on your emotions and express your emotions and, um, doing self-care got to prioritize that and, um you know, that person can't just be your spouse it does not work that way, um yeah, I think, I think that's important, you want to go watch a movie about, um Addiction and recovery now, Sherry?
1: No, thanks. I think Leaving I'll Las take Vegas? A nap. I'll take a, I think I'll take a nap.
0: Take a nap. A little self-care. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources.
1: If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org.
0: If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety...